All right, this morning, we're going to play a good old-fashioned game. And we need two groups. So, Joe and Kathy, you guys on this team. Karen, Carol, Chuck, you guys are on that team. And we're going to be doing some logic puzzles. So every team needs a designated runner. Because you guys have to write your answer down. And then run it out to me. The first person who gets their answer in my hand gets the answer first. So those are some taking notes for you to write on. Here's the answers. All right, so here's how this is going to work. I'm going to give you guys a logic puzzle. You guys work together, try to figure it out, and then you have to write down your answer, and then you have to come up here and give it to me. And if you get the wrong answer, then the other team gets 20 seconds to try to steal the answer. Each question is worth one point. All right? Are you guys ready? Your teams are ready to start thinking, okay? Question number one. There are two ducks in front of a duck. There's two ducks behind a duck and a duck in the middle. How many ducks are there? Here's how it works. There are two ducks in front of a duck. So imagine a row of three ducks. The back duck has two ducks in front of it. The front duck has two ducks in front of, behind it. And there's a duck in the middle. All you need is three ducks. All right. Question number two. Five people are drinking orange juice with, orange juice with pulp in it. Wait, no, no, hold on. This isn't right. There's... There we go. That's much better. Okay. Five people are drinking orange juice without pulp in it. Person A finishes in front of B, but behind person C. And then person D finishes before person E, but behind person B. 
What was the finishing order of the people drinking? Go. Congratulations. So I think this team has gotten two points so far. Okay, question number three. This is a simple question. You guys need to be more coordinated over there. I feel like there's not really a team effort. There's a lot of girls over here talking, and I think it's working. Okay. Question number three. Jack is looking at Anne, and Anne is looking at George. Jack is married George is not married, and we know we don't know if Anne is married. Is a married person looking at an unmarried person? Yes or no? Ain't answer. Think about it. Uh oh. This is a perfect answer. I told her not to look at it, so I don't know if she's not. I will never look at but they were correct. The answer is yes. I think they're playing their odds to try and take yes. I don't know if they know why. So, here's how it works. If Anne is married, and if she's looking at George, then she's looking at an unmarried person because George isn't married. But if Anne is not married, then Jack is looking at Anne, which means an unmarried person, or a married person is looking at an unmarried person. All right, question number four. John Hardy has 53 pairs of socks in his drawer. 21 identical blue pairs, 15 identical black pairs, and 15 identical red pairs. The lights are out because of a storm, and he's in complete darkness. How many socks must he take out to make sure 100, 100% certain that he's taken at least one pair of black socks out of the drawer? It's close, which means you guys get a chance to steal. Thank you. They said 44, which is also incorrect. So it's a draw. The answer is 39. So there's 38, 38 pair combining the blue and the red, which means if he drew one more out, one more pair out, it'd be guaranteed that he drew at least one black pair. Question number five. Amber and Tanner decide to go bowling with each other, and they bet $1 in each game. Tanner won three of the bets, and Amber won $5. How many games did they play all together? Tanner won three bets, and Amber won $5. Oh, I think Tommy got here first. Tommy said eight, which is actually incorrect. You also said eight, which is also incorrect. So I'll give you both another chance to answer. Ooh, 11 is correct. Congratulations. 11 is the answer. So here's how that works. 
Amber lost three games to Tanner, so to get back to zero, she would have to win three games. In order to make $5, she'd have to win five more games, so it's a total of 11 games. So congratulations to this team. Give them a round of applause. Guys, you guys see this exciting story one? Nothing! There's something in your hand! It's just a box that held a sheet up. It's not a part of the box. In fact, you won nothing. Congratulations. This team now is to celebrate because they won the exact same thing. Congratulations. Can we ask them to see what we get? Yeah, that's it, right there. Right on top. You can have this. This is yours. As much as you want. Five days ago. You guys won nothing. It's a bummer, isn't it? When the things you're looking forward to, like Brittany was looking forward to a prize, and the things she was looking forward to ended up not coming together, or in the case of this prize, it didn't even exist. And this, my friends, is what we call false hope. And I know I led you down a path of, a little, a little path of misleading, maybe. But it's false hope. And when we are looking forward to something that isn't real or isn't going to happen, that often leads to the outcome of disappointment, or maybe even resentment. There are a lot of post-it notes here. Uh, Have you guys ever worked really hard for something and it didn't pay off? Have you guys ever been disappointed because promises that were made weren't kept? Have you guys ever been let down because of your hopes not being held up? I know what it's like. I, I, I know what that's like. I was nine years old and my Aunt Mary was carrying my birthday cake and was loading it into a car. And it was an awesome space-themed cake. It was so cool. I had a rocket ship on it and everything. And I was really excited to dig into the cake and uh, open the presents. So we were packing up the cars, going to a bowling alley for my birthday. And my Aunt Mary tripped and really hurt her ankle and sent my cake into the stratosphere. And it came down with a crash landing And it was dashed into pieces along with my hope. I know what it's like to lose something. (laughs) I know what it's like for my hope to to be crushed. All joking aside, having hope is very important. It anchors us. It stabilizes us. It gives us something to look forward to. Even though the prize of this game that we just played didn't exist, there is a reward that is very real. And it's one that it was not going to disappoint, and it's not going to be taken away. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're going to take a look at some of the words of Jesus. So Jesus is giving this sermon to a bunch of different people, and he says many important and wonderful things and good teachings. But it's Matthew, uh, or verses 11 and 12 that I want to particularly look at here. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now Jesus just said two really big, important things. One, there is a reward waiting for you. And number two, that reward is in heaven. And unlike the reward of the game this morning, this one is real and it's a really big deal. And this reward is literally going to change everything about you. And it's going to change everything about this world. And we're going to try answering two questions this morning. What is the reward that Jesus is talking about? And why does he say the reward is in heaven? Well, one passage that actually helps us understand both of these things is Philippians chapter 3, 20 through 21. I have it right up here on the screen for us. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Lord, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the ex- uh, Exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. First of all, we see Paul using the same kind of language about our citizenship belonging in heaven. Now, it's common and widespread in Christianity today to think that we actually go to heaven. And there are some verses like the ones we read that maybe sound like that's what it's saying. But when we take a look into scripture a little more closely a different interpretation arises, a different teaching arises. The first clue is that Paul says we eagerly await a Savior from heaven. If he's coming from heaven, why would we be going there if he's not going to be there? He's coming back. He's coming to where we are. And uh, we, we know this is true because Acts 1, 10 through 11 says the same thing. They were looking intently into the sky. So this is after Jesus' ascension, after his resurrection. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken away from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So this is what we are starting to understand in the New Testament that Jesus went into heaven, but he's actually coming back from heaven. Jesus is coming back to the earth, and when he comes back to the earth, that's when things are really going to change for you and me. Take a look here at Philippians chapter 3 again. Let's go back. Paul says that Jesus is going to transform the body of our humble estate into the conformity with the body of his glory. What Paul is talking about here is actually us being changed from the mortal beings that we are into the immortal beings like Jesus is currently. A physical change in our bodies. Paul clarifies what he's talking about here in in 1 Corinthians 15. I, I got it up for us. It's actually, the section is 38 verses long, but I'm not reading it all. Don't worry, Amber, that we're not going to be here reading all of it. I just picked out the verses that kind of talk about specifically what we're talking about this morning. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
Christ the first fruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So whatever Paul's talking about here is the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That means die. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So the reward that we are talking about this morning, the hope that we have, is the kingdom of God. And Paul says that we know in confidence that Jesus is going to be raising us from the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. And he says Jesus is just the first of many, the first fruits of a multitude that are going to be raised from the dead. And unlike the game this morning, which didn't have a real reward, The kingdom is a real reward. And knowing that reality means that we should stay steadfast and immovable. Because the work that we do towards the kingdom is not in vain. Because it will happen. The kingdom of God in the verses that we've looked at this morning is described as a promise that is being held by our Father in heaven. And at a time when he deems it right, Jesus is going to return to this earth Raise the dead to life, and not just any kind of life, but eternal life. A life that never ends. But the kingdom is coming more than just to change our bodies. It's actually going to change the whole world. The whole world is going to be restored. I want us to look at one more passage this morning before we start wrapping things up. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And none of this happens until Jesus comes back. Right? This is fulfilled after Jesus' second coming. When the kingdom that God has prepared is, comes down out of heaven and restores this earth and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Everything is going to be made new. Last week, we looked at the origin story of the kingdom, right? We saw from the beginning that God made everything good. He made it a paradise. And he wants it to get back to that paradise. 
In Genesis, everything was good and perfect. And at the end of Revelation, everything is good and perfect. God's kingdom literally bookends the entire Bible. The beginning and the end are the same. It's just how we get there and what God is doing in the midst of that. Now, we've only started to scratch the surface of what the New Testament says about the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like. But here are a few things that I think we should take away from what we've read this morning. Number one, the kingdom is a future reality. We aren't here on earth just playing a game and following God's rules for a reward that doesn't exist. Right? We're not just walking through the motions here, hoping that something good happens. We are faithfully serving the creator of the universe, giving our lives over to his son, Jesus, because they have promised us. They have promised us a reward for those who trust and believe in him. And it's proven through evidence of Jesus' resurrection. These aren't fantastic stories made up for a kid's book or anything like that. This is evidence-based. Hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And his disciples went to their deaths with that truth. People don't die for a lie. Not to mention the evidence that we have in our own lives. That God has worked through us and blessed us and done things and intervened. He's proven himself. Which leads us to number two. Entrance into the kingdom comes through faith. The kingdom sounds great, and it will be great. It's going to be more awesome than we can imagine. But in order to enter into this kingdom, to be a part of what God is doing, we need to believe, have faith, trust, and be obedient. When we give our lives to Jesus, when we proclaim him as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and we get baptized, we are saying that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And what we are saying is we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And what we're saying is we believe that God is going to do that for us too. When we make that commitment, God no longer sees our sin. He sees his Son who died for us in our place. That's what we remembered this morning with communion. God raised Jesus from the dead. He's going to do the same thing for us too. Number three. Our reward is held in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Because Jesus said it. Jesus said that our reward is in heaven. Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven. What they're telling us is that the promise is secured, not in the things of this world, but they are secured with God. Jesus tells us to store up treasures not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to store up treasures in heaven, right? Where neither moth nor rust destroy. It's because heaven is separate from the chaos and destruction of this world. It's a realm completely governed by God without sin. And the promises that we have been made are secure because they are outside of the chaotic nature of this age. That's what Jesus, or that's what the New Testament calls our current time, is this evil age. And in the next age, the kingdom, everything is going to be restored. And those promises that are stored in heaven are going to come to earth. There is no disaster or government or even Satan himself that can destroy that, that can take that away from us. Here is how I like to think of it. Think about heaven as a really, really secure bank. All right? No one is able to get in there. No one's able to go and take from God our promises or what he's made for us. 
or what he's done. But the money that's in the bank is no good to use to us. We can't use it. So God is securing those promises for us. Our citizenship, who we are, the promises of the kingdom are secure in him. And when the time comes, he's going to open up that bank vault. And it's going to spill into this world. And it's going to transform it. And there's a little bit of it now that happens to us through the Holy Spirit. But all of it is going to come at Jesus' second coming. We have a great hope, right? Yes. Right? And it gets me excited every time I think about everything that's wrong with this world made right. I know there's actually nothing that makes me more excited than thinking about the kingdom that is going to be here. And I think that's how our attitude should always be. It should be excitement and joy about sharing this message with others, about what God is going to be doing in our lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your kingdom, for saving us from death, for letting us see in your word what you are doing so that we can be secure in our hope, knowing that the reward is coming. May you send your son soon to restore this world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.